Are you a high school or college runner? Or do you know a high school or college runner? Or hell, are you an adult that wants to get in the shape of your life? Got good news for you. The same training plan that got Weldon Johnson to be great is now available for you. Let's run.com. Summer training program is going to be here soon. We've third year in a row, but this year is better than ever because we've upped it from 12 weeks to 14 weeks. Build up your mileage for 12, come down for two. We do tempo runs, thresholds, strides, all sorts of stuff. It's not going to be boring plotting every day. John Kellogg and I are going to have videos for every workout, etc. It's going to be amazing. Sign up today. It used to be $150, but I'm trying to get more high schoolers to join the supporters club. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. We'll throw it in with your supporting club membership today for free. Let'srun.com slash subscribe is where you sign up for the supporting club member, but let'srun.com slash coaching is where you get all of the details. Let'srun.com slash coaching. Welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. 18-year-old Arian Knighton has run 19.49 and set the track world on fire. Is it time for Usain Bolt to get nervous? Mofair has returned to the roads, but certainly wasn't on fire as he was beaten by a club runner at the Vitality London 10,000. Is he done? The pin relays returned for the first time since 2019. Ah Thing Mo was as dominant as ever. That's the good news. Bad news was the much hyped for by mile record attempt fizzled at the very start. And we'll talk to the man who took it out in 208. Ben Flanagan. The crowds were full at Drake for the first time since COVID. And Eric Sawinski broke 150 for the 200th time in his career. Pittsburgh half marathon is in the books. Alephine Tulmuk has raced for the first time since the Olympics. She did pretty well. Jordan Hesse was also there though. And is her career over? All of that and more on this week's edition. Robert Johnson here. Pleased to have the gang back together again. Jonathan Galt is back from vacation. Good to see you, Jonathan. Hopefully, Weldon and I kept the quality of the website up while you were gone. I know you have a track and field addiction and you can't get away logging into the site and doing stuff on your vacation. I wasn't logging into the site, but... I saw on my phone, Arian Knighton ran 19.49. I thought that was pretty important, so I decided to text you guys about it to make you aware. And then Robert tries to call me about something, and he's like, John, you shouldn't be talking about track on vacation. And I, I text him back. I'm like, Robert, you shouldn't be calling me on vacation. And then he said he was only going to call to tell me not to talk about track, but I'm a track fan as well. I'm allowed to get excited when a guy who might be the next Bolt has his coming out party and runs 1949. Although I guess it's not really a coming out party. You know, he did finish fourth in the Olympics last year. But before we go crazy about Knighton, which I want to do, well then, can you can you just tell me, pronounce the name of the current 100-meter world record holder? How do you say his name? Usain Bolt. Say that again? Usain Bolt. That's not right, is it? Am I going crazy here? You and well, you and Robert call him Usain Bolt. This is a, the most famous track and field star in the sports history. It's Usain Bolt. I'm 
very rarely do I hear anyone call him Usain. And yet we've got what I like to think of as the best track and field podcast in the world. And two of the three co-hosts call this man Usain Bolt. Can we change this? Can we call him Usain Bolt since that's his name? This is fake news. I've never called him Usain Bolt. His name is Usain Bolt. <laughs> no, no, Robert, go back to the very start of this podcast. You literally called him Usain Bolt three minutes ago. Guess we'll find out in a sub- several hours when this is up- uploaded. Well, then, I don't want I don't want any funny business when you edit the podcast. You're going to keep in the introduction. You heard him say it as well, right? Well, then, I did. I. I- I didn't even think anything of it, John. So I apparently have been pronouncing Usain as Usain all these years. In Texas, John, we don't speak like everybody else. We don't pick up these subtle nuances of the English language. <laughs> okay. All right. That's your excuse. All right. All right. Well, John, I apologize if I upset your vacation by calling you. I was just trying to tell you to stop, stop worrying about track. Enjoy yourself. But then I realized, wait, he just loves his sport. This is why work isn't sometimes doesn't feel like a job, John. You have the best job in the world and the best boss in the world. That's what I'd like you to admit right now up there. I have a great job and I have a great boss, two great bosses. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, no, I'm not in there watching like the high school heats of the four by eight of the pen relays where I'm on vacation. But if I can watch Arian Knighton run 1949 in a 22nd tw- clip on Twitter. Yeah. I'm going to watch that because it was freaking insane. I mean, I was just, I, I was kind of blown my mind. Like he crossed the finish line at 200 and he just looks, he looked so good. I'm like, I kind of forgot it was a 200. I thought it was a 400 just because with like the ease and how far ahead he was of people. I wasn't used to seeing that kind of margin of victory in a 200, let alone against the guy who got fifth in the Olympics last year, Joseph Fanbula of Florida. Oh, just 19.49 in April. I, nothing about this performance makes sense except the fact that Knighton might, well, not the fact, but Knighton might be the biggest talent, sprint talent this this sport's ever seen. When you guys see the time, are you like, this is totally insane, this is nuts? Or do you think like, well, he did run 19.8 last year as a 17-year-old, this kind of makes sense, I'm not totally shocked. What was your reaction when you, you see the result? Well, it's one of those things, we weren't. I didn't even know he was racing, it's just classic, you know track fan i saw the results so i didn't have time it should be i'm not that shocked i mean this is the guy that you predicted would win the world title and in this day and age if you're winning the world title you're normally going to be running something around 19.5 right at some point during the season i guess andre de Grasse didn't do that last year but well he ran 19.62 in the olympic final into a headwind so he was you know 19.5 shape on a perfect day I mean, look, I'm not shocked he's running 1949. Did I think when his career was over, he'd have run that fast or faster? Yes. I just didn't think he would be getting there in April of 2022 before he'd even graduated from high school. It's crazy. He's 18. And maybe with Ingebrigtsen and him, we're going to reevaluate what's possible at a young age. But I didn't expect this for sure. I guess we can't go there yet, but like poor Noah Lyles, was this probably a year ago? I wanted Noah Lyles never to lose a Diamond League 200. Mike's going to be the greatest 200 meter runner of all time. Now I'm like, Noah Lyles, is he never going to get another gold medal? I mean, he doesn't have an Olympic one, but this guy was 
a couple years ago, the high school phenom, the future of 200 meter sprinting, going to be the face of the Olympics, possibly do the 100, 200 double. And now everyone's talking about an, another 18 year old kid from Florida. Yeah, well, no, Lyles is from Virginia, now trains in Florida. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really good guys who would deny gold medals by Usain Bolt as well. This stuff does happen when you're up against an all time talent. Look, Ari Knighton's never even won a medal at a global championship yet, so I'm not going to be crowning anything, but his ceiling is just so much higher than every other sprinter running right now in the 200. We've yet to see what he can do fully in the 100. Maybe that takes a few years. It did for Bolt. But 19.49, I would have to think he's going to get faster. Maybe not this year because, Robert, as you pointed out in the week that was, Michael Norman ran 43.4 in April 2019. That was when he was, what, 20, 21 years old. He has yet to run faster than that time since. Like, look at what has happened to Michael Norman as an example. Like, you would have thought by now he'd have won the world title, he'd have won the Olympic title, or at least a medal in one of those events, right? And he has neither at the moment. So, you know, Knighton's got great talent. He's still got to get it done these big things, but I I am a firm believer in this guy. It, it It was an incredibly impressive 200 meter opener and i'll put the question to you guys is he the favorite for the world championship 200 right now for me most definitely yes i mean can someone look at we've got a poll up on the homepage right now i don't know what other people agreed on i've already voted i'm going to vote again because i've got a different ip because i'm at work who will be the world 200 meter champion i'm going to put in Ryan knighton 58 percent of let's run nation thinks he will be the champion fred curley Oh, Noah Lyle's second choice at 15%, Fred Curley 14%, and the defending Olympic champion Andre Grasse only at 9%. So he basically it's a, a, people think he's four times more likely to win than anyone else. And I, I think you've got to agree with that. I mean, yes, he had a nice tailwind, 1.4, but just the, the domination of that field. I mean, I, I guess we had a different angle than we're used to seeing because it was on the other side of the track. But he was just so far ahead. Was absolutely amazing. I mean, he improved by 0.35 in this race. He's only 0.30 away from the world record. So I thought that there was a great thread on Let's Run about this race. And one of the people said, like, what did Bolt, what's the one thing Bolt didn't accomplish in his career that he wanted to do, John? 400 meter world record? No, I think I know. Bolden knows. What is it? Sub 19. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 19. So I'm I'm gonna lay in the bandwagon. I think that this guy certainly has the potential. And since look, if he goes to altitude, I mean seven thousand six thousand feet of altitude is worth about 0.20 in a 200. So Bolt could have already done it. If they had set up a race at altitude, he very well could have done it if he got the conditions right. So I want if this guy gets down to the world record territory. Adidas needs to set this up and they need to do it now. So look, look, Adidas had a nice event on their campus last week where they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and no one paid any attention to it. Some Addy zero time trial for some new shoe they have that look, that stuff was fine during COVID when you're coming out with a new shoe and there's no races. Let's stop wasting the the money on this crap and spend that money instead on getting the situation set up for an altitude race made for TV where he becomes the first person under 19 seconds and look, 
I, I made 159.40 asterisk shirts because there was an asterisk, but nobody, look, the average person, all they give a shit is Kipchoge, sub two hour marathon. With this guy, Knighton, you can put an A next to it, but it'll still be sub 20. So sub that's something to look forward to. No. Excuse me. Robert, Robert, here's what you got to do you have to start lobbying for Nairobi to host the world championships in 2025, though they might be going to Tokyo, or 2027. Arian Knighton will be 21 years old for the 2025 Worlds. He will be 23 years old for the 2027 Worlds. That is when Bolt was running his fastest times. Have them in altitude. It's only it's not 8,000, but it's about 5,500, 6,000. That's going to help you. That's where you should do it. That's where Usain Bolt was breaking most of his world records was these championships. And I want to stop making all these Bolt comparisons you know, I don't like doing it, but this is the one guy who, who does that have that talent level. But that's what you should be worrying for him to do it. Not some manufactured record attempt. Have it doing a global final. I think it's more fun that way. That's a good point, John. Very good point. But 2020, what year? 27? I mean, I'm not convinced he'll be. Look at Johan Blake. His career was done by that time. These guys get hurt. And they're not the same necessarily. I mean, you we can anticipate that he's going to have this great career and be good at 30 or 40 like Allison Felix. And I, I guess it's possible. He does look so smooth when he runs though, doesn't he? I mean, oh man. What I'm excited for, look, we've spent the last five minutes pumping up Arian Knighton as we should, because he's just run 1949 at 18. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. Fourth fastest man ever. The only fastest, faster guys in history, Usain Bolt, Johan Blake, Michael Johnson. They were all pretty good at this running thing. But I'm just really, really excited for the sprints in general, culminating with the World Championships in Eugene in July. But look at this 200. We could potentially have Knighton, Lyles, Andre de Grasse, who again, 1962 last year, that's no joke. He always comes to play at the championships. Fred Curley. I think he can go a lot faster than he has. He already beat Michael Norman this year. Maybe Norman's in the 200. You know, he's run 986 in the 100. He's always run pretty well in that. We're going to have a, some great talent in that. The 100 is going to be but incredible. Kenny, and Kenny Benarek, the Olympic silver medalist, isn't going to be Kenny in Kenny Benarek, he'll be in the mix. I mean, just making the American team is going to be pretty brutal. And then Fambula, I mean, the way he closes in races, I don't know if he's quite at those. He was fifth in the Olympics. I'm not sure if he's quite on the level of some of the guys we already mentioned, but... Yeah, we always say if he can get his start figured out a little bit, but just he, him being in the race, sneaking in for a bronze or something, that can be exciting. And then all the talent in the 100 right now, Jacobs, Curley, Coleman, Bromel, who just ran 9.75 with a barely illegal tailwind, 2.1 over the weekend. Oh, it's just, I, I'm super excited. And this other thing, I'm really pumped about this. It's actually crazy. Fred Curley and Marcel Jacobs, the Olympic gold and silver medalists lost yeah, I don't know if you guys saw this. They are now scheduled to race each other in 100 meters three times before the World Championships. They're facing off this weekend on Saturday in Nairobi. Then the pre-classic, they're part of a loaded field there on May 28th. And then Rome, Jacob's home turf, the Rome Diamond League on June 9th. That's Curly, Bromel, and Jacobs are all in that race as well. It's just such, it's so strange for me after we had a decade of the very best guys in the 100 all dodging each other, well, the two best guys, Gatlin and Bolt, during the regular season, that we're now seeing the Olympic gold and silver medalists three times before the world championships. It's, it's, 
I, I I like that the big stars are showing off, and it's a it's a big change. Wait, the Olympic gold and silver medalists are racing this weekend in Nairobi at the hundred meters. Had you not heard about this, Walden? No. I mean that's crazy. I are they like doing a re- reduced appearance fee? Because. <laughs> That should be big, big bucks. I mean, this is Marcel Jacobs' first hundred since the Olympics. Now, maybe he wants a lower key meet. There actually could be huge fans there, right? I mean, this could be a, a big crowd, but I just assume Nairobi doesn't have the budget of a Diamond League meet. But I don't know if World Athletics is chipping in money or if they're taking a discount because it's sort of a unique situation. But well, we're wow. also supposed to have. Shelly Ann Fraser Price and Shakari Richardson. Now, I'm not sure if Shakari is going to show up, but if that showdown materializes as well, we've got the bad blood from the pre-classic last year. It's good. It should be a really, really interesting meet, assuming everyone who has been announced to show up shows up. Okay, you got me. You got me skeptical, John, because I'll do any side bet anybody wants. Shakari Richardson will not debut versus Shelly Ann Fraser Price in Nairobi this weekend. I'm just gonna. I know nothing. I have no inside info. I just will say that won't happen. Oh yeah, I I, I don't expect her to be there anyway. But she has. I have not seen an official withdrawal as of yet. Let's stay at a hundred for a second, and then we can kind of tap the brakes a bit with a Johan Blake comparison. But this Trayvon Bermel race, I don't know if you guys are giving a dude. Dude, did you guys know who was second place in this thing? Andre de Grasse ran ten oh seven. Was way I mean, back some, in this race. Smoked. I mean, I'm like, oh, well, Bramel early season, almost a legal win, so it, it's pretty fast. But I'm like, okay, whatever. He beat a bunch of no-names. And then I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's the grass. I mean, it looked like a man against boys. I mean, it really did. It, it was stunning. So last year, let's not forget, he was the favorite heading into the Olympics. You know, amazing comeback story. So throw him in the mix. I guess the good thing for them is I'm pretty sure Knighton's not going to be running the 100 this year. No, well, whatever. That that actually may not be the case. No, like I said, well, it, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great time for Trayvon Bromel. I don't know exactly. They, they both ran the 200 at me as well. And DeGrasse beat him, but they didn't run as fast. It was 26.7 to 2069. That was wind legal. It was plus point one, plus one point two wins in that race. But yeah, I I tr- I'm not too worried about Degrasse throwing ten oh seven. This guy is a proven championship performer. He always shows up and delivers when it counts. But I'm more excited by Bromel running nine seven five. Now he's got to make sure he does it in in Eugene in July. But if you're running nine seven five in April, that that's pretty promising. I'm just not going to get too. I guess I am getting pretty carried away with Knighton, but. I'm remembering this time last year, we were saying, oh, Shakari Richardson, you know, who's going to beat her? She's running 10-7 in April. Michael Norman a few years ago. There are a lot. There are other athletes who will be able to get to that level at some point this year. I'm very confident of that. But the fact that Bromel's there right now, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's be- better sign than running 10-0. For sure. I mean, if you want to knock a season last year, he ran fast early. And you're like, oh, well, he was peaked too soon, but that's not the case. He actually ran fast after the Olympics as well. He just kind of had a blip at the Olympics. Well, yeah, he's he said that he thinks traveling overseas for some reason has 
he doesn't run as well overseas. And some of the results do back that up, though he did medal back when he was, what, 20 years old, the 2015 World Championships, his first Worlds in Beijing. But yeah, having the meet on home soil in Eugene, I do think probably helps him. So yeah, we'll see. But exciting start for Bromel. Another name to remember here, Favre Oshay, University of Tennessee freshman by way of Nigeria. He ran 979 this weekend. That was a 3.0 win, but that's like a 992. So he's pretty good. He's like second or third in NCAA indoors. And we kind of gave the women's short shift, John. And the sprint's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm going to start my sprint website this year. I've been saying I'm going to do this for years, but we didn't even mention the name of Elaine Thompson Harris. Remember how she was going to beat Flo Joe's world record? She came close to it last year. So if everybody gets going, it's going to be a lot of fun to, you know, to watch that. But all right, enough sprint talk. Let's talk about what we were talking about last week at this time. And that was the four by mile world record attempt at Penn. So, John, you're out of town. Walt and I feel like, oh, God, we're actually going to have to watch track meet this weekend. If John can't do it for us while we spend time with the little kids and stuff, we'll be exposed as frauds if there's no coverage on the website. So, we figured out how to log into the Let's Run Flow Track account and we pulled up the Penn relays on my projector at my house. And I don't know, do we only have one Let's Run account? Well, didn't, couldn't, didn't seem to have a login. So he calls me and what kind of wants me to tell him what's happening or, or FaceTime the screen to him, you know? And the gun goes off and I'm playing with my kid and Weldon's like, what'd they go out in? What's the split? I look up kind of, I'm not really paying attention. I'm like, oh, it certainly doesn't look like they're running very fast. They're running together. And then they're right around 800 at this point. And Weldon can see, and he goes, I think it's 208. And I was like, what? And then I was like, yeah, it's 208. And then he says, all right, you can turn it off. Bye. And then hangs up. <laughs> that was it. I mean, this was like false advertising. I agree with Weldon's reaction here. This was a joke. This thing was hyped by On Athletics. For weeks on end, we talk about it weeks on end, and then they don't even go out at world record attempt. Like, was this? How can that be? Well, I hope John wasn't watching this. At one point, he texted and asked for the Let's Run VPN. That's NordVPN. Everyone knows it's the best VPN out there, especially for sports fans. Super fast. Super secure. You got to check it out. You got nothing to lose. 30-day money-back guarantee if you go to letsrun.com slash VPN. But turns out, John wanted to watch an old episode of Jeopardy. You're making me sound really lame, but I am I am a Jeopardy fan. Uh, look, I, I have no shame in admitting that. I wanted to stay current on Jeopardy. There's a big, there's a woman who's won 20 games in a row. I wanted to oh, see how okay. she did, so... Okay, at least there's something going on. I was like a little curious. But this race was at like 2 a.m. Barcelona time, John. So I'm hoping you didn't watch it live. But I soon then, I was a little angry. I was like going to write the on PR people and be like, hey, if they're not going for the record, you need to tell us. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, I bet they were still going for the record. I'm like, it, it just took two minutes of turning off and this thing didn't happen. 
And that's why I reached out to Ben Flanagan, the first leg for On, who I, I just loved it. He addressed the post, addressed the situation in a post on Instagram. We only, usually only hear from athletes when stuff goes really well or they sort of downplay stuff that doesn't go great. And I love what Ben posted. So we're talking to him at the end of this podcast. And, well, we've already spoken to him. So I, we, it's informative, you know? Yeah, I appreciate his explanation. I don't know if we want to spoil it well then, but he, you know, he, he mentioned that he reacted a little bit late when he saw it was slow. And then by 800, like the same thing as you, he saw it was 800 and then he's like, well, we're pretty much screwed. He had to pick up then, but yeah, I don't know. I think people will appreciate listening to his explanation. You can say maybe if he, you know, if his job was to be there to be part of the record attempt, maybe the owner should have been on him as opposed to one of the other guys, but he's also, he's not coming at it as a miler. He's coming this for a 10 K perspective. So I would just say, listen, it's what he has to say. You can still criticize him, but I appreciate hearing what he said. Look, I didn't participate in the interview. I haven't heard what he said, but no, the job was <laughs> both in this race and in the Oregon race, the people put in charge of putting on the race to, to do it. So either get pacing lights or get a rabbit to go out. You know, yeah, give me a break. Anyways. In retrospect, that's what I would have done. I think New Balance the women broke the DMR world record at the opening of the track at New Balance, whatever that thing's called. It's called future. the track at New Balance. You nailed okay, it. Okay, good. The future of indoor track in America in my book. And this was a two-team race. But when the gun went off, John, there was a third team. This is the DMR. I don't know. I guess this is legal. But the third team had one member on it. I don't know if you have to legally pretend there's other members on the team, but there was no one on the track unless you and I were allowed to run into this thing. But she just rabbited the first leg. And I think, like, that's all they really needed, right? Think how many four-minute milers you could drag out there to rabbit the first leg, or even the first couple laps. And who knows what would have happened. I still don't think they would have gotten the record. The record was very hard. You look at the splits. The second leg was slow too for on. I mean, on was behind after two legs and then Joe Klecker and, uh, Ollie Hoare did a good job catching back up. Yeah. I still don't think they probably would have gotten the record. And yes, when you get, look, when you get to 400 and you see 64, even if you don't want to take, you don't want to take the lead. If you're part of that OAC team, which Ben was, it, it kind of is your responsibility to say, well, someone has to pick this up. Like every step I waste, is another you know fraction of a second I'm losing towards that time, but no, I don't, I don't know. I just appreciate hearing the explanation. Anyway, so it turned out into a decent race. I didn't actually get to see this race, but it sounded like the Irish team they were facing actually gave them pretty good competition. I don't know. Did you did you finish watching the race, Robert, or did you turn it off and discuss like Weldon? I tried to tell Weldon that I enjoyed the rest of the race. Like I. I came back in like in the middle of the second leg and this Irish guy had gotten way ahead and he ran a 355 split. And then I thought that the announcers did a good job of sort of falsely coming up with a second thing that was interesting, the 1604 meet record, as if that's really important. So they did end up just missing the meet record set by Nate, Nate Brandon and Nick Willis from Michigan way back in the day. So it, it was okay. But let, let's talk about the, 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 what ended up being the big race of Penn, at least in the pro sense, 
Othing Mo versus Ozzy Wilson and Natalia Gold and everyone else. But at the end, this was Oz, the Othing Mo show. I mean, we had some reservations. She didn't run indoors much this year like she did last year outdoors. Her outdoor times at 400 were slower than she'd been running last year, but it had been windy. Would she look good, etc.? And, man, I mean, she just destroyed everybody in that last 200. And if you only look, if you didn't watch the race and you only looked at the results, you see Ajay Wilson way down. That's kind of misleading. Ajay led the first 400 and then just tied up a little bit. But, I mean, everyone looked like they were just not even in the same race over that last 200. So this was a really good sign for I think, though, for me. And... I don't know. I had doubts as to whether she would win the gold this year. I was thinking Keely Hodgson would do it. After this, she's my gold medal favorite. Yeah, definitely. I watched this and I think, you know, going in, like, I don't know if I would have said, picked Hodgkinson over her, her going into Penn, but basically this was the, like we said a few weeks ago on the podcast, we wanted to see how she did. This was a real field. It had Wilson. It had Natoya Gould in there. These are legit athletes. It was going to be a real test because, the thing Mo hadn't raced a lot of competition to this point in the season. She passed with flying colors. What I thought was very impressive was when we saw her race a lot last time, she was, you know, her, her most recent American record at the pre-Fontaine Classic. She just destroyed everyone early, you know? And this one, she just waited till 200, and that's when she really separated. I thought she waited a little longer than she did in some of these other, her other victories last year. The class... The class gap that existed in 2021, it's still there, people. You know, she ran 122.74. That's the fourth fastest time in history behind only Casta Semenya, Ajay Wilson, Anna Fidelia Quirot of Cuba. I think she probably could have gone faster if she needed to. It's only April. Very impressive by Thing Mo. And yeah, absolutely still the, the gold medal favorite, Robert. Yeah, I was surprised that Ajay had the second fastest time because she's so much more of an 800 meter runner than 600. Kind of shows maybe that the 600 really isn't contested very often. Well, that was also peak Ajay. That was 2017, and she was in the race with Semenya. So Semenya basically dragged her all along. So she had like ideal conditions. But yeah, I was a little surprised with that too, Weldon. When I saw this one, I think of, you know, I think she's faster. She's a sprinter. So in my mind, I was thinking she would be ahead. Then Ajay's ahead. I'm like, oh, wow, Ajay putting up a good fight. And then it was just total destruction. I mean, super impressive. It was, it was good to see. Like, I didn't want to have to worry about a thing Mo all year. And now there's no concerns. But I guess the question now is hopefully Ajay Wilson doesn't get too beat up by this. 600 is not her event. She's the world indoor champion. You know, she, getting down to 155s isn't going to be easy. But I if... Anyone else besides Raven Rogers can do that in America. She's the one. So I think it'll be a pivotal rest of the summer for her. Yeah, I'm not really concerned by Wilson's result. She tried her best and she fa she faded, which hap can happen if you go out a little bit too quick in a race like this. Well, I'm looking at this actually, though. This, oh, maybe this is her last four. Her last four hundred is fifty nine eighty six. Sorry, I'm looking at the splits here because she went out in twenty six oh one, and then her second, you know, her final time was one twenty five eighty seven. But yeah, I, I'm not concerned about RJ after this result. 
just heard from John Kellogg yelling out from the corner of the room that all things time converts to a 156.64 for 800. Now those second, those other women that all ran in the, in the 120, well, I guess until your goal ran 124, but Nia Aikens, Brooks Beast, 125.14, Sophia Gori in the high school, 125.22. I had John Kelly convert that. That's two minutes point one, you said, John? Two minutes point one four. So certainly pretty good. I don't think there's anything for Ajay to, to worry about, but I also don't think she's a lock for the U.S. team. I would be the most. I would be in, t- in terms of who I feel most confident would make the team. I would have a thing. Whoa, a thing. Mo number one, clearly. Rogers two and Wilson three. I and yeah, who who is most likely not to make the team of those? It's Wilson. And it's the hardest distance event in the U.S. to make by far. I think. Yeah, I, I don't see anything that's a close second. You've got the world indoor champion and the gold and bronze medalist from the Olympics last year. What other event in the U.S. has that? All right. I, I just wanted to say a couple of general comments about Penn. I didn't get to watch the Penn relays, but I did see some of the clips of races on Twitter and this morning and yesterday once I got back to the States, I tried to catch up on it a little bit. Just remind me how awesome a meet this can be at its best. You know, these cha- the thing we always complain about in track and field is that we don't have enough me- meets that carry significance. It's all about the major championships, the USA's or Worlds. Everything else is just a dress rehearsal or practice. But the pen relays actually does have some meaning. You go out there for the wheel. Like being a pen relays champion, that means something to these college kids. You send you have some of the top distance programs in America entering their top athletes in a four by fifteen or the DMR. All Miss they doubled up Mariona Garcia Romo in the four by eight and the DMR. They won both of them. Winning at Penn means something, and that's that produces good races. You know that four by mile. Watch that last lap of the men's four by mile. Tell me that is an exciting racing with nine teams bunched up with two hundred meters to go. Texas getting the win there. That was really cool. The women's 1500, Arkansas versus NC State, like I said in the Friday 15, or was it the Friday 15 of the regular podcast, Robert? I, t- I tipped you off to Arkansas. Don't discount four by 15. the 4 by 15. Sorry. I discounted you. I, I, you, know, you didn't mention them, and I was like, don't forget they're the DMR champions. They came in. They broke the collegiate record, but they had to work for it because Chrissy Gear and Caitlin Tui, they had this great duel on the anchor leg. And you, know, you can't just create a meet like the pen relays out of thin air, but I would just like to give a round of, you know, my appreciation to the coaches and athletes from these schools who show up to Penn and take it seriously and race for this stuff. You could just be obsessed with peaking for NCAAs or chasing qualifying marks. It's nice when the big programs go out there and race each other because we get exciting action like we did at Penn this year. Yeah, there is some significance to Penn and just in general, I think one issue with the sport of track and field, and I don't think this will really ever change, is a lot of times the context of the performance doesn't matter. Aaron Knighton runs 1949 at LSU at some random meet. It's still a 1949. It's still what everybody's talking about. Penn means a little more, but which is great, but there's only a few meets that really have meaning, like a regular season. Like we kind of have all these sort of like festivals 
and many things that have their own individual significance, but they don't mean anything collectively together. And the only meet that really matters is world championships or USAs. So maybe that's the, we have the pins, we have the drinks track. is just, it's so unique and how it's structured. So I think we have to celebrate the pins of the world, the drakes of the world. We've been showing our East coast bias because we haven't really talked about Drake. Really, action like the times aren't normally as quite as good at Drake as they are at Penn. I'd say there's generally better quality field at Penn in terms of the collegiate stuff. Iowa State was good on the men's side, but Drake had a better pro meet, I would argue. Well, I don't know, not the 600 this yeah, year. No, I, I, I think it, without a doubt, they had Ryan Krauser, they had uh, uh, Jasmine Muhammad, Lila Muhammad, Allison Dos Santos. Yeah, they have more top pro athletes at Drake as as they usually do. We should probably go to Drake also because it's packed, right? It's 100% sellout. So no, I think you might. Robert, you cited that in the week that was. I was watching the TV. It didn't look packed. And maybe that, that's the, some of the attendance figures for Penn and Drake. At times, you see a lot of empty seats. So that's the thing. These meets go on for like six, eight hours a day. I think a lot of people, they're there to watch somebody run earlier. They're not staying all day. From a fan, it's cool to be there, but like from a TV perspective, each meet only sort of has a two-hour window because they're almost impossible to cover. A lot of the stuff we loved was, you know, some of the stuff was on Thursday. The TV window's on Saturday. So these things are really festivals. The one thing I wanted to say about Drake, does it feel like to you guys that there's just horrible weather for this meet every year? I started working for Let's Run in 2014, and I'm, I swear at least half of the Drake relays since then have been either super windy or wet and cold and miserable. I mean, probably. Maybe that's just Iowa and May, John. I mean, now that I live in Connecticut, there's not spring is not March and April in the Northeast or Midwest. It's May. I, I know. I know. I, I know. And I feel bad for them because... In college, the big party weekend, the big spring drinking weekend at Dartmouth was called Green Key Weekend. I feel like the administration actually just invented it as a drinking holiday. Like, I don't really know if there's anything real, you know, substance behind it. But we used to joke that the president of Dartmouth had a weather machine because without fail, every year it would be super sunny, even though it was only like the second weekend in May, which was definitely not a guarantee in Hanover, New Hampshire. I feel like Iowa must have the opposite of this for Drake because I feel like Drake realized without fail, you know, maybe it's not always nice the last weekend of April, but I feel like most times it's pretty horrible. Like it's the opposite. It's the worst possible weather. So I feel bad for them. I, Cause I do like I, Drake. I, do I like, like their investment in the pro side of the sport. I just wish the weather gods would cooperate. Maybe they need to call up the Dartmouth president and see if they can borrow the weather machine for Drake Relays weekend. All right, John, how many races have you run in your life? Oh, I'd say uh, 150. I I don't know. That's just a very rough estimate. Well, Eric Swinski's run 200, 800s under the time of 150, which is pretty impressive. I guess as an 800 guy, though, you're a little bit – you're always racing the 800. It's not like you run that many of the other events. As a, John, as a, as a multifaceted you know, distance runner who cover a wide variety of distances, it's not like you're going to ever be able to run – 200 sub 30 minute 10,000s or sub 14 flat 5,000s, anything like that. 
it's got a little bit easier because they hundred specialists, but still amazing. I don't know how I don't know how he's kept track of the two hundred races. Like David Monty has this huge spreadsheet. I feel like David he tweets about it every so often. I think he might be the one with the database. I don't know if it's Eric or him, but he always tweets about it. And Eric Sawinski, remember he had that really long streak for a long time of making every U.S. final. So it does help. You usually have to run under one fifty to advance these national championships. That's five right there if you're doing indoors and outdoors. But he also races a ton on the circuit. Yeah, it's just huge credit to his legit longevity. He's still out there at one at 32 years old, busting these out. Kind of reminds me, I believe John Walker has the sub four mile record at, I think it's 136 all time. Or maybe, maybe Steve Scott, I think Steve Scott broke it actually 136, but that, yeah, some of the the consistency with those sort of performances, I don't think that record's ever going to be broken. No one's running 137 sub four miles in their life. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's nuts because the mile doesn't run that often well, anymore, and maybe that's why that one's going to stand forever. But I mean, thirty-two, John, you act like he's like thirty-eight. Now, maybe in the eight hundred, the careers aren't that long, but it's just amazing. He deserves some sort of lifetime achievement award. And he does have a world indoor medal. Let's not discount him. He made the world championship team for the U.S. in twenty fifteen outdoors, and he was. A bronze medalist at World Indoors indoors in 2016. So it's not like he hasn't, you know, he's not going to go down as a sort of a legend of American distance running, but he's done some decent things individually as well. I am kind of surprised he's got that World Indoor medal, but I don't know. I guess Drew Wendell's got a nice Boris Berrien. We've had a Chanel Price. I mean, sometimes. Like, Aj Wilson wins, you're like, oh, yeah, Aj Wilson, world champion at last. But then sometimes just stuff happens in the 800, right? Yeah. I don't even think... Penn, excuse me, Drake had both 100... Well, short hurdle champions. I shouldn't say 100 hurdle, 100 hurdle champions. Jasmine Camacho Quinn. Uh, I don't know how much they paid her, John, but she only made it one hurdle. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Wait, do you remember? Are you looking up at the names right now, Weldon, or do you remember off the top of your head who won the hundred ten meter hurdles in Tokyo last year? Well, I saw Drake Hansley Parchment, right? Yeah, I just feel like among the twenty twenty one Olympic champions, he's one of the guys that he will be forgotten the soonest. I feel like if you had to list all of them off, like two years from now, but conceivably. But yeah, he ran well. Into a headwind. I don't know if it was Bermuda, Bermuda-like headwind, but everyone else was complaining about the wind and uh, uh, Drake. But yeah, you're, you're probably right there, John. I didn't mean to discount him. I mean, he he ran a great race in, in Tokyo. He's just, you know, compared to the other Olympic champions, he's not as big a name, you know? But but John, he's always going to live on because the volunteer, you know, lended, lended him like the 100 bucks to take the Uber or whatever it was, That's the taxi. True. That, yeah. That was one of the viral stories of the Olympics. They talked about it on the Drake broadcast. So, I mean, it's a great story. <laughs> it's really awesome. He showed up to the wrong venue, and then it was too late, so he had to get the volunteer to give him money for a, for a taxi. It was pretty awesome. You know, maybe one thing these races could do is coordinate next year. Have one have the TV window from 12 to 2, the other from 2 to 4, because they were on TV at the exact same time kind of shocked I saw any of these races. I was playing with my two-year-old in the basement, kind of trying to go back and forth. I realized I missed some stuff because 
and never saw. Would you say Sid McLaughlin's the most? Well, Allison Felix is the most famous female track star right now. Sid McLaughlin might be the most the most highly paid. She she yeah. could say she is the greatest in just in terms of like pure talent and a like she destroyed the world record. She is probably the single greatest, at least American track and field women's athlete in her event right now. Would you agree with that? Right. Um, so she made her debut at Penn, won the short hurdles. I didn't see that on TV. I heard that Jenny Simpson was doing color commentary alongside Robert's coll- well, sometimes colleague, Bill Spaulding. So did anyone? Did we get an explanation? Is she going to race anytime soon? Did anyone listen to that broadcast to get a Jenny Simpson update from Jenny Simpson? Thank you, John. People think we're just this good. We don't plan this stuff out, John. But when I was watching Drake, I was like, oh, we got to talk to Robert on the podcast about this. I don't know if he, he even saw Drake because it was on CBS Sports Network. Not CBS, CBS Sports Network. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Bill Spaulding, Robert's co-announcer of the Ivy League Championships every year. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Jenny Simpson. And well, first, let's ask Robert. Robert, did you hear hear this at all? Nope. Didn't watch a second of Drake. Oh, I got bad. Didn't watch a second of White. But don't feel bad. I didn't watch a second of Penny. They only watched highlights of the Saturday action. Well, I got bad news for you, Robert. Jenny Simpson was very good. I thought she was great at commentating. Kara Goucher may have a run for her money. This doesn't shock me at all. Jenny Simpson is one of the best interviews in the sport. She's always thoughtful, very well-spoken. I would expect her to be a natural in the commentary booth. She was great. I don't know if she practiced, but since these races run both at the same time, I don't think my DVR need to automatically record Drake. I was trying to rewind to like see if she said something in the beginning about where she was or she's injured, so I didn't hear it, John. I was trying to get to that as well because I'm like, wait, where's Jenny Simpson? So, viewers, anybody who heard that and knows if she gave an update, please email us, podcast at letsrun.com, or you can call us, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, 1-844-LET'S-RUN. You can also text that number. We love your feedback. Leave us a voicemail if you possibly want to... Win a free pair of shoes. Next voicemail we use will win a free pair of on shoes on the podcast. And actually, speaking of of giving away shoes, I did have another. We've been having weekly prediction contest. We had one for the four by mile at Penn, and if everyone entered, only two people picked over sixteen minutes. So I've sh- I've shipped out the. Well, I haven't shipped out the shoes. I've given away the free code to our winner. But thanks to everyone who participated. Keep checking out the forums. I think we're going to keep this weekly contest thing going. Can someone explain to me why it would be bad news if Jenny Simpson's a good commentator? Well, isn't your goal to become the number, the voice of track and field in America, Robert? I mean, this is your partner. This is your partner, Bill Spaulding. You grew up as a twin. It's all about loyalty, keeping the unit you know, keeping the partnership together. And now you've been tossed aside. Let me ask you guys a few questions. How many world championship teams have I made? How many Olympic teams have I made? I don't think you've made any, to my knowledge. 
what is my race and what is my sex? You're white male. Yeah, I'm not sure which of those four answers is the most damning for your chances. Most damning for my job prospects, but I wasn't exactly thinking that I would be the first. I mean, Craig Mosbach was. Now, Craig was a much better runner than me, but I think I'm much more entertaining than Craig. So, hey, if you want, there, there's, there's, you know, some good announcers out there. I was actually listening to. I, I just want. I want good announcing. That's what I want. I, I think I was listening to the high school action at Penn. And I thought those guys were pretty good. So I just, I want someone who knows her stuff and does their homework and is entertaining. So if she's that, that's great because I'm not waiting for them to, you know, it's hard enough for me to get the Ivy League every year. Okay. That's Penn and Drake in the books. Shall we move to the roads? Upstate, upstate Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh half marathon. There are a couple interesting things here that I thought were worth discussing. One quickly on the men's side, Wesley Kiptu makes his half marathon debut for the Hoka NAZ elite squad, wins it, 101.26 course record. It's pretty good. It's not a flat course out there in Pittsburgh. So seems like a guy based on his cross-country success that he will be a good half marathoner. That was a successful debut for him. Women's race, the win goes to Caroline Rotich, who also set the course record, 69.31. She is the 2015 Boston Marathon champion and former training partner of the runner-up in that race, Alephine Tuliamuk, 2020 U.S. Olympic Trials marathon champion, dropped out of the Olympic marathon due to injury back in August, hadn't raced since. So this is her first time running since that race in Sapporo, 69.56 for second place. And then back in 10th, Jordan Hesay. 118.35. What do you guys think about those two results from Tulia Mack and Hesse, two of the biggest names in U.S. marathoning? Well, I'm glad to see Alephine coming back. I mean, I think she can maybe get on a podium someday at a at a major. But the same thing is really depressing to me. I mean, 78 minutes? You know, we've had Pete Julian on the podcast. He says he guarantees she's going to be back. But people, I mean... Like that to me shows you're like something's off. Like your endocrine system has to be shot. I mean, some people when they're gone, they're shot. Their careers are shot. Like Brian Hall done. Jordan has say, I find it a miracle if she ever comes back to like this is a woman that ran two twenty in the marathon, John. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Robert, because the Ryan Hall comparison I think is a pretty good one, right? That is one possible route for her is that she put she pushed very hard in training. It brought her to some great results, but it put her in this vicious cycle of just never being able to get back to that previous level. That's one possible path. Or there's another is that this is just a down period. Look, it's more than a down period at this point. You know, she hasn't run a great race since 2019. It's been a while, but I'm basically at the point with Jordan's like, fine, if she wants to keep trying, whatever. I'm She's not really relevant in the United States running at this point, but I've seen, we've seen a lot of athletes, particularly on the women's side of late, who have had these late career resurgences or, or surges. I'm just going to be sort of keeping one eye in the back of my mind. I'm not thinking of her as a factor in any of these races, but just be like, all right, she ran this, she ran that. And then if I see some signs of progress, then you start getting excited again. But 
right now when I see Jordan Jose go to a race, I don't really expect much from her. But I'm I'm, I'm still not going to say like, oh, she's never coming back. I, I I'm just not going to go that far. Well, there's a lot of more sinister conclusions you could also make, John. I don't want to go there. I mean, some people are saying eating disorder. Some people are saying was Alberto rubbing in her when he was giving her if he did give her massages. I don't know, but John, she's 40 seconds per mile off of her marathon PB for half the distance. I mean, that's like another world away from what she needs to do. I, I like Jordan. Her dad's a fan of the website. I really hope she comes back, but to me, I think she's done. And I just, I don't see how to look at this. I would like to say one thing about this men's race. Wesley Kip too. Look, I don't know if I said it before in the podcast. I'm not a fan. Just maybe I'm biased because I was a college coach where like, going pro in the middle of your senior year, the school's done something to you. They gave you a scholarship, but look, I guess there's no loyalty. These big schools, they don't give a shit about you. So take what you can get. He just had a, he just became a father. He picked up 10 grand on the weekend. He's getting paid by Hoka. I just kind of wish like, why couldn't Hoka just pay him the money and then let him sign, like let him go pro like after NCAs are over to kind of reward the school. But I guess in the modern world, it's just sick. Do it, do it's best for you. So I'm glad that he's doing well. 61 is pretty good. It's a very hilly course, but the more significant results here is to me, People were on the message board are speculating that he's wearing was wearing a Hoka prototype. So, you know, Ben Rosario has been on this podcast says, oh, I'm not worried about the shoes. I think we had an eagle playing field. Someone started a thread because they thought he was wearing a Nike Vaporfly, which I was like, finally, Hoka's come up. And someone's like, no, that's actually a Hoka prototype. So I hope that's true because we need more people. The shoe companies either have to have their own super shoes or they have to let the people run in the super shoes. Otherwise, it's just, why would you run for them? Robert, I'm going to push back on this take that that he, you know, turn athletes turning pro early. They, you realize the schools don't pay them; they give them a scholarship, but you know, you, they're not paid as college athletes. You can't accept prize money. So, I I think that's just why not get on the NCAA and say, hey, they should be allowed to accept prize money in races instead of turning it around on the athletes and saying they're, you know, being traded to their school. I just think that's your target for the anger is misplaced here. What do you mean? They give you a scholarship because you're a great athlete. They want you, you have a scholarship to run, you know, look, uh, there was no scholarships at Princeton. It's all need-based financial aid. A guy that I know from my hometown got into the school because he was recruited by the tennis team. He got to the school and quit the tennis team. Never, never went out for the team. I think that's wrong. You were led into the school to be on the tennis team. And now you don't want to do the tennis team. You're given a scholarship, you know, if you're an Oklahoma football player to play football in Oklahoma. If you quit the football team, your scholarship should go away. His scholarship, okay, but he turned Robert. First of all, the Princeton athlete, I can totally understand that. If you say you get recruited to be part of the team and then you quit immediately, and never play for them, that's a different situation. Wesley Kiptu competed a bunch of NCAA championships for them, won an NCAA title. Finished second NCAA cross and third NCAA cross. He gave plenty to that track program. And now he's got a young family that he needs to support. And you're saying, oh, he should be he should be criticized because he didn't he didn't run one final NCAA championships at the end of his senior year. I I just disagree with that. I'm just I'm just saying that no, he's done a lot for them. And they I I I didn't criticize him. I just I don't like it. I would prefer that you finish your commitment. But with him with a kid on the way and he just got 10 grand and he's getting, this is a, when you're from Kenyon, you have no money and you have no family to back on. Absolutely. I'm not really criticizing him. It just, it's like an ideal world. It wouldn't ex exist. I wish that companies would have more 
loyalty to employees, employees, vice versa. But in this modern age, just do what's good for you, I guess. Just do what's good for you. I just don't view this as much of a problem in track and field. Well, a couple of things. One, Robert, if he like quit the team in the fall, his scholarship may not carry over to the spring. I mean, so he, they lost out in one semester. He did get ten grand, as we're noting. So he won $10,000 in prize money. He had no access to that. But wait, with this name, image, and likeness stuff, and they have that – they said athletes can take some prize money, right, to cover expenses. Can you not just take the full-fledged prize money of these things? I don't see what the deal is. Instead, you can have some booster pay you, like – $5 billion to play quarterback, but you can't take any prize money. I don't, th- I don't think you're entitled to the full amount of prize money because prize money doesn't, I don't see how that falls under the name image and likeness. That's like an achievement. It's like prize. That's a professional sports prize. It's like you winning Wimbledon or something as an amateur and accepting that money. You're no longer an amateur. I don't think they're allowed to accept prize money. And I don't see how that Robert, how would that interfere? Like, shouldn't that be changed? Don't you think that athletes, should be able to accept prize money while they're still in college. Yes. It's going to be interesting, right? Because I think eventually this falls back in the NCA. So you can get paid by boosters in a total sham way now. Um, then if we let them take prize money, so essentially you're saying compete for everything except don't get paid by the school. And then you're like, wait, are the schools taking advantage of them? And related to that, there's a newsletter called the Sports Examiner. It's very good. It's about Olympic news. And I just subscribed this week, by the way. Well, then I'm. This is not a plug for them, but Rich Paramon is the guy who runs it, and yeah, he does a good job. Yeah, and so I don't know how often it comes out, but I'll put a link to the show notes. And I don't, I don't know, John. I don't know if you saw this one. It talked about this California bill, Senate Bill 1401, and essentially it says that. And this and he just sort of lays this out. He's like, this would be the end of college sports as we know it. It would require, or maybe the track and field. It would require like the schools to split fifty percent of the revenue because that's kind of like what the pro sports do. Like fifty percent of the revenue from each sport has to go to the athletes, and they're also like doing guaranteed amounts also above scholarships, like twenty five thousand dollars. But he went through the math and he's like, there's only really like college basketball per person brings in the most money. College football, they exceed their scholarships amounts. Maybe women's basketball at a few schools. And besides that, every athlete on scholarship is getting a great deal. Like the amount of money that the program brings in is, is way less than the amount of scholarships going out. So what college sports are today, essentially it's the revenue sports funding sports like track and field and everything else. And that's the system we have. Uh, if we want to go more individualistic where every sport pays for itself, I mean, this could be a, it would really hurt track and field. I mean, I think, I don't think the bill's going to happen, but if athletes start getting paid, they're due. If the colleges start paying the athletes instead of funding the non-revenue sports, it would be a huge blow to track and field in America. Yeah. Massive. I mean, my, I'm curious is it just 50% of the revenue or is it like 50% of the profits? Because if you're looking at track and field programs, you're getting 50% of the profits. You might end up having track and field athletes having to pay. It's going to be negative. So they're going to have to be paying money to stay on the team. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, that was the point when he went through the math, he's like, no one has an honest discussion. Like all oh, these college athletes are being taken advantage of. 
the superstars are, everyone else on a college scholarship is getting a pretty good deal. All right, gentlemen, can we go across the pond for the Vitality London 10,000? They had this on what's called a bank holiday in England. And the big story is that Mo Farah, this was his first race of the year. He's 39 years old, but he's, he's not giving up his career just yet. He goes out there and he gets beaten. Here in 28.44 for 10,000 meters, if you win the race in 28.44, no one's really all that worried, but he got beaten by Ellis Cross and the whole, who's a 25-year-old, they're all saying, oh, he's a club runner. He paid money to entry to enter. He paid 37 pounds, which I find it kind of ridiculous. He's run like sub-29 minutes. I feel like you should, that isn't grounds to get into an elite field in, in England. Seems kind of weird there, but... Anyway, big run for him, but some of the comments after Farah got beaten in this race, I don't know, did you guys see them? It seemed like he's basically saying that his elite career on the track may be done. Like, th this is what he said. I'm quoting from Sean Engel's article in The Guardian here, but he said, they asked him, you know, is your track career over? And he said, I think for sure, I'm just being honest with you guys. In terms of the track, that's it, I think. Do you, do you think we'll see Mo Farah in an elite track race? Or will we see him in a marathon? What would you do if you're Mo Farah right now, 39 years old? Okay, John, when you talked about the comments about Mo Farah, I thought you meant like the comments by the British press. People seem to take a lot of glee and almost as demise. I feel like the British, maybe people say we do that here in America, but I feel like the British press... They love to tear down their people more so than here. I don't know if it's a little more tabloidy. I mean, who knows? Maybe people say, oh, our forums, people love attacking the stars. But I just was kind of shocked at like, oh, wow, Forrest Dunn, look at these guys. He's the greatest British distance runner ever. So I think, of course, his track career is done. We probably knew that after last year. And then that begs the question, people were like, why did Mo try to return to the track? His marathon career, he never ran the super fast times, but it wasn't that bad. He ran some decent times. And now look like what his coach Gary Lowe did. He coached, what, the Olympic silver and bronze medalist at the Olympics last year? Mo Farah's just as good a marathoner as those guys. So should he, I guess, should Mo have it's easy to say now, you know, in retrospect, right? But did he try to stick, come back to the track? Was that a mistake? Uh, when he did it, I don't think so. So I think it's just one of these things now we're kind of like, you're not going to be a really good track runner at his age. Yeah, I think, look, when he decided to make that comeback for the Olympics, first of all, we thought it was going to be on the track in 2020. And you've also got to remember the atmosphere at the time when he made that decision. Joshua Cheptegei had not ascended to the level he's at. We didn't have Selmon Borrega just destroying everyone left and right. There was a vacuum at the very top of global distance running, and we thought Mo Farah, look at his medal record. He basically he won 10 straight global championships in the 5 and 10K. He would have been 37 for the Olympics. That's old if it was in 2020, but not unreasonable. I was like, okay, he doesn't. his goal was to win a gold medal in Tokyo. He knew he wasn't going to beat Elliot Kipchoge in the marathon. So he thought his better shot was on the track. I don't fault him for that. I think that was the correct decision. And then he tried to prolong it one more year in 
2021. The problem is he's getting older. And what does that mean? It means you're more susceptible to injuries. He's dealt with a bunch of them in the last couple of years. If I, you know, it's up to him. If he wants to stay on the track because he likes running that more and that's what he wanted to do, that's fine. But if I were in his position, he had some pretty decent success in the marathon. He won Chicago. He won a major. If I were him, I'd go back and give it one more, one last hurrah. Go for London this year. Get a nice fat appearance check. Run that. See what you can do. Kipchoge might be in New York. Maybe you could even have a shot to win. Uh, maybe that's something he should have been focused on a little earlier. But I think he could still, you know, be on the podium for a couple marathons in the majors this year and next. If if that's something he wants to pursue. But if his goal is to be the very best in the world in an event, I don't know if that's possible in any event for him right now. So he may as well retire. But no, if he wants to keep going and try to make the Commonwealth Games or the European Champs on the track, which is something he suggested, fine. But he's not going to be number one in the world in anything at this point at age 39. Look, he's probably shot completely. We didn't know that. Uh, coming back to the track, I thought was smart. The Olympics didn't help him. It, th- when you're in your late 30s, it can go quickly. I mean, look at Mevka Fuzzy. He wins Boston in 2014. By 2017, he was basically done. And then, I mean, 2017 was his last. 2017, 11th in New York, 13th in Boston. So that's not, you know, that's only three years after winning one of his biggest races ever. So it goes quickly when you lose it. He didn't know he was going to lose it. But to lose, like, I think after last year, you probably thought he's done. But then I thought, well, he's going to run this race. Why is he doing it? But to lose to a 13-50, guy is not a good sign. I would try to do that. What would I do for him? Very simple. Try to make as much money as possible. Where's he going to make money? Marathon. The problem is in London, he might get spanked. But if he, if, he, uh, if I was London, I'd pay him his appearance fee one-fifth of what it used to be. Or one-tenth. I mean, I'd still give him a nice chunk because he's – who else do the British guys have? You know, he can go – or and then maybe come to Boston or something. But – I, I'm afraid this might be just, you know, if he can't run 206, it's like not relevant really anymore. One t- I mean, I think that's kind of an insult, right? One tenth or one fifth. Mo Farah, he might not be peak Mo Farah, but he's still a legend of the sport in Britain. I feel he, like, if you're paying him for like name recognition and that sort of stuff for this appearance fee, you pay him pretty close to his full appearance fee for this full because people, oh, come he, on. people are going to be excited about Mo Farah running the, no. the London Marathon in terms of like Robert people don't pay these appearance fees based on your ability to win the race they pay them based on the interest you bring to the race and the press attention what do you think is going to be more exciting spending that on two Ethiopians who can run two, two actually it's going to be more than two Ethiopians who can run 203 but spending that on a bunch of guys who can run 203 or 204 or spending it on Mo Farah Who's going to be a huge storyline the week of the race? You know, is this the end for him? He's going back to the marathon. That would draw a ton of eyeballs. I feel like that's a much more interesting storyline, spending a bunch of money on him to show up to run. So you think you should get like half a million dollars, John, to show up and run? I mean, look, in terms of are all these appearance fees, I'm just saying, I think that's what he would be worth. If you're paying him a million pounds earlier or something like that, I feel like he'd be worth half a million. I feel he, in terms of London, who are the two biggest draws they're going to get? It's probably him and Kipchoge, right? Who's going to bring more eyeballs to the London Marathon than Mo Farah? John, he likely got paid so much for his debut because he's the greatest track runner, making his debut, the anticipation. I mean, the money could have been off the charts. So I don't think you pay him that amount now or every, I think even year two, he didn't get paid that. So, but if it's a Mo Farah, 
farewell tour, yeah, then he might get paid more than he did, say, last year or something, or whenever he last ran it. But I don't know. Maybe now they'll appreciate him a little bit more. I feel like he's kind of always had a hostile relationship with the British press. I don't. I mean, not always. I feel like some occasionally, but he didn't like all the questions about Salazar, even though I, I think they were fair. But who else is going to pay him besides London? Big money. These races, it's the same thing with New York and Boston. I'm like, why do they pay him? Who, who, are they, who are they negotiating against? They're negotiating against themselves. They do it as a charity act. Look, if he got $500,000 in the past, he doesn't deserve more than 100. Well, look, here's my whole point, Robert, is then we're getting to the point of what's the point of these appearance fees at all? Would, like, are, are substantially more people go, like, substantially more people going to run the Boston Marathon or the London Marathon based on the professional fields? Like, what are you looking to accomplish out of paying these pro runners anyway? But I think you go back to look, Mo Farah, the, all right, the last time he ran London was in 2019. That was his fourth, third London Marathon. Sorry. I feel like you pay him something in line with what you paid him then. You know, it wasn't, it's not a big a storyline as 2014 when he made his debut or in 2018 when he was sort of committing to be a marathoner. But in terms of the attention he would draw, now he did draw a lot of attention that week because that's when he said that he got in the public spat with Haile Gebrselassie, which was basically sprinkled all over the back pages of the London papers that week. But I feel like he's, if like, if we're talking about what they're worth, I feel like he's worth in terms of an appearance fee, similar to what he got for that race in 2019. And John, you said, why do they pay appearance fees? I've been having a discussion with a race director. I think I kept them anonymous on the forums. He's like, why do you have prize money? And anyway, and I think you do it. Well, one of these races have big budgets. And because they want to have the best, they want to be the best in the world. And to be the best at anything in the world, it costs money to get the best people. There's competition for those people. There's limited resources. So if you want the best marathoners in the world, you pay to get them. It enhances the prestige of your race, whether it's a one-to-one dollar thing. I don't know, but a lot of these races are nonprofits and it expire inspires the next generation. I mean, as a kid, I watched the New York city marathon on TV. I assume I actually saw Alberto Salazar. I don't really remember. And I know for sure Greta Voights. And like, let's run.com probably wouldn't be here without that. Like, I got inspired. I'm like, oh, this is inspiring. These are the best people in the world that are running the marathon. So I think that's part of the reason. Um, whether every race should do it is a different question. I'll link to that thread in the show notes. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Is there anything else we wanted to cover this week? We do have the track meet in california this weekend but i think we'll cover that either on the thursday 15 or friday 15 whenever we record a lot of good distance action there we do have the nairobi continental tour meet as well which we'll cover in that preview podcast but anything else robert before we go on the regular podcast you want to address yes first of all i think i want to do an instant reaction show after the the meet so we'll do that live right after the meet on friday night that'll be your bonus podcast so you'll have it in your run saturday morning because anticipating a race we don't know what's going to happen nah, it's lame people won't have enough time to get excited for it anyways so we'll go live on the internet youtube twitter right after the right after the 5ks on friday night i'm not going to wait waste our time on the 10ks and that'll show up in your feed if you're a supporting club member go to let's run.com slash subscribe 
But back to this London thing, I think they should cut his appearance fee in half and then use that money to be in a matter of inclusiveness to create a non-binary prize money in division. Oh, so are we going to go there? We're going to unleash this rabbit hole, Robert? I'm worried you might get canceled if you unleash the full fury of your takes on this subject. I've just stated what I would like done. That's all I have to say on the matter. See you guys next week. Well, Robert, if, if we're not going to have the Friday 15, in case you guys are new to the podcast, we have a second podcast every week for supporters club members. We usually preview the weekend action. There's a great meet Friday night in California. The sound running meet. I'll be talking to Jesse Williams, the director of sound running later today. And this podcast has gone too long. we got Ben Flanagan coming up. Don't forget that to listen to Ben. So I will drop the Jesse talk as a podcast, as supporters club members. But if we're not going to preview the action, we got to say something about it right now. I mean, I'm so excited about this meet. Friday night, Jakob Ingerberson, he's running a 5K, U.S. soil. This thing is stacked. He's taking on King Chaz. Tons of other guys. Josh Kerr, Olympic bronze medalist, is in that race. Connor Mance. Joe Klecker is there. Drew Hunter. Nico Young. I think you're forgetting somebody from NAU, John. Well, wait, I was I thought Abdi Hamid Noor. We talked about the possibility of him becoming a breakout star. Yeah. He's he's in that race as well. Collegiate record possibility. It's been floated around. We need you that's what you need to talk to. You need to talk to Jesse and ask him, is the collegiate record something they're thinking of for the NAU guys? And then what's Jakob's plan? What is the collegiate record right now? 1308, I believe, is the collegiate record by Lawi Lang. I mean, there are the other people. He ran 13 flat the summer of 2013. He, that was in Europe. It wasn't while well, he was running really for Arizona, but then he came back and ran the next year. I would consider it 1308 by Lang. Well, I think we may see a sub-13. Sub and then we've got some of the Newbury Park guys. Are there Lex Young has entered here in section two of the five thousand. Colin Solomon is in the fifteen hundred, facing off against Let's Run.com in turn. Carl Winter. That's the race of the night for me. I mean, if Carl loses to a high schooler, I don't think he can ever produce content for Let's Run again. I mean, this is huge, John. It's too bad Carl still runs for Pepperdine. I'm sure he doesn't view it that way, but we get the Let's Run singlet beating a high schooler again. No, actually we got when Alan Webb went sub forward, beat the Let's Run single. But anyway, we could be there, you know, advertising. But no, screw it. According to John, let's just send Carl a Let's Run singlet right now. Go to FedEx, FedEx it to Carl, tell him to wear the damn singlet. According to John, that's perfectly no, fine. No, he's not. We're not paying yes, him a ton of money to do this, Robert. You're, this, you're twisting my logic to suit your means. It's wrong. No, he can still run in CA regionals next week. He just runs in our singlet this week. We don't pay him anything because we don't want to violate his, his amateurness. And he just tells his coach, screw you, buddy. I'm, I don't need the time for Pepperdine this week. Thanks for paying my way here. Here's 20 bucks for the gas. And then he can run regionals for Pepperdine next just, week. The, the logic here is just totally melted and broken. I don't follow it at all, Robert. This is a false analogy. I won't subscribe to your theory. You're taking it to the logical extreme. Do what's in your best interest. Why period. is that in his best interest? He runs for Pepperdine. His best interest is to represent Pepperdine, not Let's Run.com. He doesn't need... He's already into regionals. His time doesn't help him at all. So... 
he would get more publicity running the Let's Run singlets. The shoe, shoe execs would say, wow, who's this guy? Mm, are we sure that's true? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I feel like shoe execs listening. He's getting publicity right now. We're talking the shoe execs listening to this podcast, hearing us hype up Carl Winter. All right. The, all right. What, speaking of other the 1500 in the top heat, Yari Nagus is entered. I'm going to be interested in that. We haven't seen him since indoors. Is he healthy? Clock's ticking towards NCAAs and USAs. Where's he at? So I'll certainly be checking in on that. Taking on pin relays. No. Sam Tanner won Drake, I think. Drake relays champion Sam Tanner. The women's 15. John, this might be your mid-distance race tonight. Gabrielle DeBoe Stafford, who's very good, always good. I think this could be a big one for Sage Herta. She went sub two for the first time at Penn. And this will be her first real test after, you know, full training block as a pro. What can she do racing someone who's better than her at 1500? You got Alicia Monson in there, Sinclair Johnson. Yeah, it's interesting. Sage Herta, I was impressed by that run at Penn because it was 159, but it was like kind of chilly, not great conditions. I mean, if you can run that then... That's pretty impressive. And she told the lap count this morning, Carl Moba's newsletter, that she was still debating between the 800 and the 1500. To me, it seems pretty clear she should be in the 1500. I don't know what her current fitness level is at. And I guess in that event specifically, we'll get a better answer. She said, you know, she wasn't afraid of all the big names in the 800. But I feel like if you want to be making the 50, if you want to be making a team, a better bet this year is the 1500, right? Yeah, I mean, forget about making the U.S. team at 800 unless somebody gets injured. Um, but, I mean, this means the OAC means 5,000 meters. A lot of these races have sponsors. It's no question the race of the night. You got the Atlanta Track, excuse me, the Atlanta Track Club. The American Track League meet the next day, which I assume will be on some form of ESPN. The same place. But for Let's Run Junkies Friday nights tonight, you can pay-per-view it, one-off subscription or purchase, which is the way I think more meets you done. Most of the money goes to the fields. We need more stuff like this. I guess if we're not going to preview this thing on the Friday 15, does anyone beat Jakob Ingebrigtsen? Winning time and winner of the men's 5,000 meters at the sound running meet. I think it's Ingebrigtsen. I'm going to say... 1305. I don't know what it's paced for. That would like it'd be a lot more helpful if I knew exactly what they were pacing this race for. But knowing nothing, I'll say 1305, Inga Brixen. Join the supporters club to find our interview with. We'll type this up. I will type it up as well. Some of the highlights of our talk with Jesse Williams, head of sound running. Gosh, I want to see sub 13. I'm just going to say it's going to be 1257 with your winner. Abdihamid Nur. That's so stupid. I was going to say 1257. Nur is not going to beat Ingebrigtsen. If no breaks into Brixen, I mean, well, we're already, we're already doing a podcast live reaction, but we need like a splash page or uh, I don't know what, like the hype machine would be out of control if an American beat Jakob Ingebrigtsen in <laughs> 5,000. It would be nuts. in sub 13. Oh my God. The message boards would go insane. Would have every, you know, five threads. It would just be, I couldn't even conceive that. Well, if we learned anything from Penn, 
Maybe we shouldn't hype anything too much. Are they the pacing rights at this meet? For the 10, they flew them in, remember? Like, Hayward Field shared them with them, so... Can we chip in an extra few dollars in the pay-per-view to get pacing lights for the next time so they can, like, permanently have them? We'll find that out, but... Hey. Keep listening to Ben Flanagan. He shares his experience at Penn. What really went down in the 4 by mile That's next. Glad you're back, John. Good talking to you, Robert. Yeah, it was good talking track with you guys as well. Well done. And just remember, if I learned one thing this episode, it's Usain, not Usain. We've got a special guest this week, Ben Flanagan, who's sponsored by On, now a member of the Very Nice Track Club. I don't know what he's most famous for. Perhaps the... Will your dreams become reality victory at the 2018 NCAA Championships where he was a 14th seed, came from nowhere to win it all and ask where his mom was. He's also a two-time winner of the prestigious Falmouth Road Race, a winner of the Manchester Road Race. And this past weekend, he was on the on winning team at Penn Relays in the 4 by mile which we thought was a world record attempt that came up short of the world record just missed the pin relays record ben also beat hobbs kessler in a 1500 two weeks ago so we've got a lot to talk about ben thanks for joining us yeah no problem i i appreciate the intro and ben we've never done this before i almost want to call this like where your dreams don't become reality because <laughs> usually we, we talk to athletes after some huge triumph, and you did win at Penn this weekend, but I don't think I've ever talked to an athlete, let's see, what, four days after I turned off the broadcast while watching them, I must admit, the gun goes off at Penn, I'm excited, I'm like, oh, they've got an outside chance at this world record, there's a reason it's a world record, it's hard to get splits at a four by mile, and I'm like, that looks slow, and then I'm like, was that a 64? Then I'm, Is that a 209? And I'm just like, what is going on here? And I turned it off before it was over. And then I'm like, I don't, they weren't going to, they didn't go for it. They misled us. And the, the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, I guarantee they're going to go for the record. Ben's got a story to tell. And then I checked your Instagram and it was great. You acknowledged it. You said, it's an absolute privilege to line up with the OAC for the big event at Penn last night. I know the 1604 and 407 split doesn't look pretty on paper. And trust me, I'm not thrilled about my contribution either. Mistake was I let my leg get too tactical and didn't make any decisions about it until a decent time was out the window. If I could change some things, I would if I could. So I loved it. I'm like, we got to talk to this guy. So <laughs> Ben, what happened? Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And uh, I like the concept, you know, wish you guys did it earlier. I, I would have come on after all my bad performances if you've been doing this for the past couple of years. But uh yeah, I mean, it was a wild event for for a lot of reasons, and um, you know, I could I can tell the story in a lot of different ways, but um, yeah, the biggest thing was uh, you know, after that that fifteen hundred in in uh, Columbus, uh, I ran three forty four, nothing nothing crazy for the type of training I'm doing as you know more of a ten k half marathoner now. I, I was pretty happy with it, um, but I was not expecting to get a text from Dan Lilo, my agent, four days later about flying out to Penn to hop on the four by mile. So, um. 
you know, I was pretty nervous, honestly. Like I got that text and I was like, I mean, all I've been hearing about these guys are trying to run, you know, 1549 under 358 a leg. And um, just where I'm currently at, I was like, I mean, I can, I can maybe give a 359, but like, is that, is that what they're looking for? And, you know, the, the impression I got is that they, they really needed someone there to make sure that they were able to feel the team and on obviously invested a lot in this um, event. So it was kind of a no brainer for me, but I was also like, I was quite nervous. Cause I was like, obviously, you know, I'm lining up with Ollie Hoare and Joe Klecker guys that, you know, can bang out a 358, 355 miles solo. Um, but I was assured that I just needed to go and, and help the team any way I could. So I got there and, you know, I, I realized pretty quickly that the record was still very much in the conversation. Like I got there not knowing if it was like, okay, because me and, and Tom Elmer now are, are on the leg, like, are we still going for the record or is it, are we changing goals or managing expectations a bit? But I learned pretty quickly that guys were like, Hey, like we still have a shot at this. So let's do everything we can to make it happen. And is, is there like a coach is like Dathan Ritzenheim coaching you guys, or is the on some of the marketing guys say we're going for this kind of who's in charge or is no one in charge? What's going on? Yeah. I mean, that's a really, that that's a really good question. And it, and it definitely provides some insight into where like I kind of was amongst it all because, you know, I talked with Ronnie first of all and said, Hey, is, you know, you're my, he's my actual coach. So I talked to Ronnie and said, Hey, are you okay with me flying out to Penn to do this? And he said, yeah, go do it. It's a great idea to contribute to on. Um, obviously, you know, who's supporting me and is my sponsorship. Um, he said, yeah, you can, you can give him a 359, you know, you little, whatever you just call me, you know, as Ronnie talks, I don't know if you know him, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he encouraged me to do it. And then when I got there, you know, Dathan, Dathan definitely provided a lot of guidance and, and support, but I don't think he felt like he needed to coach me. So he definitely relied on like coaching Ollie and, uh, Joe. And, and I think kind of just trusted that I would, I would do what I could. What, what we needed to decide though, as a team was what the lineup was going to be, um, which obviously becomes very relevant in hindsight with me leading that leg and it going so slow. But um, it was actually kind of a unanimous decision to put me on the start because we were worried, including myself, that I wouldn't be able to, you know, solo anything under four minutes, um, especially if we were in the lead early or there was a gap or anything. Um, and I'm best known for racing. So we're like, okay, let's put Ben on the start. He can just race the guys uh, to, you know, anywhere from 358 to 402 and then kind of rely on the rest of the guys to chase times. Um, so that's where we went into things. And um, I, I guess, I guess in my mind, I really wasn't concerned that it would go any slower than 203. I felt pretty good about, you know, at, at the slowest, we'd come through in 203 and I could close in a 158 if I had to. And all, then we're in a pretty decent scenario fast forward that's clearly not what happened so yeah i'm i don't know if you guys have a question about that <laughs> i can just keep going well, well the first lap like are you realizing oh i'm behind pace like when do you realize uh oh this actually could be a problem in terms of the record slipping away or does that not enter your mind until after you hand off yeah i mean it definitely jordan donnelly who's one of the lead um uh, product guys for innovation for on he's the one guy that told me like i'm gonna get to 200 to give you a split because just in case it's 33 you gotta go and i'm sitting there like there's no way we're gonna go in 33 like i'm running against a bunch of different milers and right before the race Dathan told me he said hey the irish team is actually front loading the field 
So get ready to go. So I'm like, perfect. I'm going to tuck in right behind, sit, and then win this leg, pass it on for the guys to do the rest. And yeah, we got off and things felt pretty good. So in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, I'm either going to run, you know, 354 today or we're, we're running really slow. And uh, we got through 200 and I heard a 32, 33. And like Penn's a pretty weird, especially, so we're starting, you know, what, nine times four, 36 meters back from the start line. So all the splits are a bit funky. So I heard 33 and I don't know if I just didn't really conceptualize how slow that was, but I waited until we got to the, to the lap count and I saw 64, 65 and it was like, okay, that's quite slow, but you know, it's not that much slower than what we went out in Columbus. So I, I kind of started to play a game of chicken there and I was like, okay, if I think this is slow, one of these milers is going to make a move. Sure enough, we go through another 200 and I look at the clock and it's even slower. And then by the time we got to 800, I was like, okay, I have to do something. Um, and I blasted in my terms, a, a 158, 159. And that's about as fast as I could go. So I didn't realize that we were 208, 209 through the 800. Because when I came and handed off the baton at 4.07, I just looked at the clock and immediately just like sank. I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I just ran that slow. Um, so I didn't really understand how slow we were going until it was way too late. Um, and yeah, obviously there was definitely a lot of guilt associated with that, given like I knew the rest of the guys would have to average, what, 3.52 in order to put the record in contention. So it was pretty clear that, that was out the window as soon as I handed it off. Hearing you explain it, I see how it happened. And Penn's got weird splits, as you said, and it's a four by mile. And there's just, unless it's perfectly planned out, and they say you got to hit these splits, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to rely on these minors. I'm going to outkick them. And there's not much room for error. You have two minutes, and then it's over. After that two minutes and eight seconds, you did what you could, right? But it was almost too, it was too late then. When I saw the 800 split, I'm like, they can't get the record, I thought, like right away. Yeah, and that's like, that's where I kick myself quite a bit like in hindsight yeah it probably would have been best to go to the, to the front and like honestly like i'm pretty realistic with my fitness and my capabilities like i don't see a scenario where i solo 359 i may, i maybe could have sold 403 404 but odds are i was, was going to be pretty disappointed about that as well so yeah i would say after that first lap i felt kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because it's like okay i can push it but i don't really you know i don't really know how much likes but i have um so yeah, I mean, I, 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 at the end of the day, like all this, all the excuses I could make are relying on other competitors in that, like, that's not a solution in my mind. Like, I don't, I don't think it's fair to bank on your competitors to take you through a fast split. Um, so yeah, I just either need to be more prepared for that, which obviously wasn't an option. Um, or I just need to look at this big picture and, and move on. And, um, you know, a lot of the guys, like I could tell, you know, they're all competitive. They, they wanted the record. But um, all the all the on guys that I ran with and Dayton were like really reassuring afterwards and said, hey, you know, we can't thank you enough for coming out. We know you did what you could, um, et cetera. But I also knew like for how hyped the event was, anyone that I guess maybe didn't understand like the nuances or the context of the race, I was like, oh man, I'm just going to get blasted on the internet, <laughs> which I wasn't <laughs> looking forward to. <laughs> could I backtrack for a second? When you get the text from Dan Lilo, your agent, about this event, do you have an option to just say no? Because they've already run through a couple legs, a couple guys who can't run it. You are a contracted athlete by on. How much of it is, well, I'm sponsored by on. I kind of got to go run this for the brand. And how much of it is, well, it doesn't really fit my schedule. Like how much of that is your decision versus, you know, the, the brand? Yeah. I mean, definitely varies athlete to athlete. Um, I mean, on, uh, I would say uh, quite a progressive 
brand. Like, I don't think they would have ever put me in a scenario where it's like, you have to do this. And the impression I got, I don't know, I said yes right away. Maybe if I said no, they would have pressed harder. But the impression I got, it was very much my choice. Um, so I didn't feel like a lot of pressure, but I did feel like a responsibility, you know? Um, and you know, like we're track athletes that are sponsored on three to four year cycles, right? Like it's a pretty, um, I don't know what the, what the word is, but it's not super secure all, all the time, right? You really don't know, but end of your contract, if you're going to get another one. So I think if you have any opportunity to score some, some brownie points with, with your sponsor, it's probably an athlete's best interest to, uh, take advantage of that opportunity. And, um, yeah, it was the right thing to do. So it was, it was a no brainer for me. I know some athletes have world record bonuses in their contract. I think Kyle Berber most notoriously had a some world record thing and they didn't realize he could be on a DMR team and get it. So, But it would be cool to be part of a world record, world best, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, I think most athletes are going to jump at the, at the opportunity. Yeah, 100, 100%. And I got pretty sucked into that. Like, you know, a couple of days before, especially when the hype was building or maybe a day before, I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe do I've got a 356 in my legs? Like, And that's what happens when you just get excited. And, um, yeah, I mean, now that it's all said and done, if things went perfectly according to plan, I think I could have ran a 358.99. That was going to be about as good as it got. And and we still would have been close with that. Like, then Tom would have to have a, a bit of a stronger leg. He went for it. Who knows what happens if I, I hand it off in another position. And then if Joe and Ollie have a, have a real sniff at the leg or a, of the record, maybe their legs go faster. I don't know. But um, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, it was really cool to be a part of, um, and I've never been fast enough to be a part of any relay. So it was a new experience for me just running with a baton. <laughs> I'm a former 10K guy myself. I support 10K guys getting on relays. Yeah, it was cool. We need more of this. Well, we can move on to other stuff because you got a lot of other cool stuff going on. But I guess after the race, I want to know what Ronnie said because Ronnie, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't hide words. I'm, I'm curious. What he said, because I saw nice stuff by Joe Klecker on Instagram, but w- what did Ronnie tell you? Yeah, yeah, Ronnie doesn't hide words. That's a very good way to put it. However, the one thing that I guess might surprise people is he is like unconditionally supportive. So he finds he finds a way to thread the needle between, you know, making fun of you as much as he can without it really striking a chord that like, you know, is is deeply personal, I guess. So the first thing he said, you know, as soon as I picked up the phone, was like, hey, congrats. I'm glad you, you know, made sure the Michigan guys still had a faster four by mile than you. So thanks for that. Because there's a 1604 point, like literally milliseconds below what we ran. So that was the first thing he said. And I was like, aha, yeah, thanks a lot, Ronnie. And, and then he said, hey, you know, I saw the last half looked good running 159. That's great. Um, you know, bummer that it didn't go, but that's that's a little bit out of your control. So he definitely reassured me. And um, at that point, I've also ran the 5K as well. So we were able to sh- shift focus to, hey, um, 5k looked good. We got the job done there and in big picture, like, let's just move on to what's next. So, um, yeah, he, a couple more swear words in there from, from what I'm explaining, but, um, he was supportive and, uh, motivating and made sure to, you know, poke fun at me when he could as well. I guess in general, I don't want to call it a bad race, but a race that didn't go how you wanted. How do you bounce back? Did you yeah. skip ahead or, or I mean, maybe it depends on where it is in the season. If it's at the beginning of the season, it's much easier because you have so much to look forward to. For a race like this, it's totally just about like mentally restructuring, right? Like it's really easy to get sucked into like an objectively disappointing performance. But um, I, I, I know this sounds weird to say because it almost 
makes it sound like it's good to lean into excuses, but I think it's important to rationalize certain certain contexts. And uh, for the status of training I'm in, you know, gearing up for a, at the minimum a 5K this season, at the most a half marathon the next six to eight months. Um, it's really about just looking at, at the positives of it and understanding like big picture that, hey, I was able to, you know, close in 158, something that is typically not that easy for me to do, come back and run a solid five, feeling good. Um, that sets us up pretty well for for a 10 down the road. And now we've got a good uh, training block uh, to to get back into, you know, really um, sharpening up for some events that are really catered to what I'm really good at. So uh, let me put it this way. If it was a, a four by 5K and four by 10K and I significantly dropped the ball, that'd be a different story because it's like, this is where I'm in my element and I underperformed. Um, it's important. You know, I wanted to go better, but I just need to kind of keep a big picture mentality and uh, and move on. So what is the focus for you this season? Is it trying to make the world's team? Is it Commonwealth Games? Is it something else? That's a good question. And um, just for context, like the the fall went great, as good as it could. And I was in a in a place I felt really good about. And, and I actually broke my toe um, right before Houston. So uh, that took a little bit to, to come back from. So I, I'm kind of just rounding into, I guess, like quality form now. And it's an, it's a point where we're starting to decide like, okay, what can and can we not do this season? Um, I, I really do think I have a shot at Worlds in the 5K, um, which the 5K is just such an unforgiving event for me. It's, a, it's the event I just missed at Olympics last summer. Um, but with, with Ronnie's kind of touch on things, thir- low 13 teens is a possibility. It's still a stretch, but um, I think it's worth, you know, taking a shot at. So my current schedule right now is I'm going to Ottawa to run the 10K Canadian Championships on the roads. Uh, Canadian record in there is uh, 28-17, and there'll be some quality guys in that field. And then about three weeks later, I'm going to r- try to run a fast five at Harry Jerome, again, alongside some Canadian athletes. If that goes well, and I'm in the running to make the um, Canadian team for Worlds, then I'll run uh, the Canadian champs. If I don't make Worlds, then I'm going to the roads, and I'm going to try to win literally any road race that I can and uh, gear up for Houston, um, likely in January, and then make a marathon debut in the following spring, or I guess that coming spring. So about a year from now, I'm going to be a marathoner. You've had tremendous success on the roads. I think, I mean, well, I don't know if any North American athlete, no North American athlete probably in like 30 years has won Falmouth twice and done what you've done. You ran 61, what, 38 in Houston this year, which was very good. Have you always thought the marathon's my future? Yeah, I, yes, I have. And I say that with like a bit of a, like, you'll notice like almost like a reluctant tone. Um, You know, it's how I got in the 10K, right? It's like no secret that in college, it's like, I would love to say that, you know, I could have won the mile or 5K at NCAAs, but that that truthfully was not the case. I debuted the 10K, it went super well. And I knew it was uh, an event that I could excel in at the collegiate level. And I'm kind of re-entering that phase at the pro level where, you know, it's like, even if I made the world team in the 5k it's like how much more can i really do right like i don't see myself being a global contender in the five ever as much as i i hate to say it um the 10 is a pretty complicated event i think right now on the world stage just with limited opportunities smaller field size um so and the roads have been good to me so i think all arrows point to the direction of being a marathoner um, the things I'm just trying to be aware of is not rushing it because I have, you know, a, a history of getting hurt. 
And um, and my ego, my ego is the only thing really keeping me on the track right now. I feel like I can run, you know, at my best low 13 teens and make a, a one global team on the track. And this is going to be my last hurrah to see if I can do that. And then no matter what, I'm moving on this summer. So, um, and then it's going to be focusing on what I think I'm really going to excel at, which is being a full-time road athlete. Speaking of ego, you did beat Hobbs Kessler in a 1500. Um, I mean, he's... But many considered, you know, the future of, well, we've got a couple guys now in the U.S., but the future mile, you know, future of miling in the United States, you beat him in a 1500. Like, were you surprised by that? What did Ronnie tell you afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely surprised. That's that's a good place to start. Um, you know, at that point, I didn't really know what to expect on the day, just coming back from um, a little hiccup and being in an off distance. Um, Hobbs definitely, like... I think Hobbs did everything to let me have that one. Um, you know, just being a young athlete, um, he's continuing to learn just his body and his racing style. So in my mind, I definitely think of it like almost like winning a workout rep. Um, but we were in a race. So, um, yeah, Ronnie and I have, I've definitely poked fun at Hobbs a little bit about that. And, um, you know, I, I do believe he really knows that despite me getting the W and possibly the only W, um, or maybe, uh, the, the, a W and the only time we'll ever race each other out of that event. I might be undefeated against Hobbs in the 1500 for the rest of my life. Um, I think he really will understand that, you know, he's clearly a better athlete at that distance. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm not worried about, uh, where he's going to go from here. So he's in great form, um, from what we've seen and, um, yeah, I'm excited to see kind of his future races. So, um, yeah, I, I just hope he like, I don't know. I, I, I felt like a, I, I just want to make sure I didn't like, you know, just erasing teammates is always like an interesting thing. And I, I just didn't want him to like overthink it, um, which he hasn't. So, um, yeah, it's all worked out fine. How much do you train, work out with him in practice? Um, nowadays less, like when I first got here, um, we overlapped quite a bit just because we weren't quite entering like the specialization or divergence phase. So for example, I worked out yesterday, he worked out today. But, you know, he came and warmed up with me for my workout. I went and warmed up with him. So I see him almost every day. Um, but, you know, he just runs splits that are, like, completely outside of my range of ability um, on the speed side of things. And, you know, the strength stuff, um, I'll typically just do more volume. So there isn't as much overlap. But there's still some things that we do together. Um, but we just excel in vastly different forms of training. So even if we're working out together, odds are, you know, he's either dropping me or I'm going like twice the distance as him. So, uh, but it's cool. He's great to be around. You switched groups, you know, this year, moved back to Ann Arbor, joined the, I guess, nascent, very new, very nice track club. But before with like the Reebok Boston group, there were a lot of the distance runners, longer distance runners, sort of more, I feel like your event group. But in this group, you got Mason for he's steeple. He could probably run a lot of stuff. You got Hobbs is a miler, Nick Willis, I mean, he's almost my age. Well, he's like 10 years younger, but when you get my age, you say almost my age. Um, do you have people to train with? Is that going to be a, a hard thing for you to do? Or, or like, how's the transition going? How do you feel about it? I mean, you got another legendary coach to train with, which is great. Yeah, the transition has been super smooth, which is awesome. Um, you know, my transition to Reebok was, was pretty tough. And I think a lot of that's just coming out of um, collegiate athletics and you just have a lot to learn. So um, second transition was a lot easier than the first. Right now, this is exactly what I wanted. Um, I feel like a lot of my career, I kind of was pigeonholed into being a 10K guy. And, you know, high school was a long time away. But, you know, I was a, I, I, I ran the 1500 at the World Youth Championships back in 2011. So 
um, I do think there's kind of the, always been this layer of um, speed work or intensity that has kind of been untapped uh, just because I got to college and maybe it took a little bit to get used to that style of training. I think the default was often to, okay, let's pack on some mileage and do some more strength stuff. So yeah, I think right now doing what we're doing with Ronnie is is really what I wanted and is going to make a significant impact. A year from now is a bit of a different story, right? As we're gearing up for a full marathon as opposed to, you know, possibly the 5K. That's where, you know, that type of work is really not going to be as significant. But um, I, I'm not too worried. I, I really think, like, I trust what Ronnie's going to be um, doing for me. And um, the one thing about Ann Arbor, like, in general, is it's a very inclusive running community. So even if, you know, like, we have reps where Hobbs and I might be doing different things, like, it's not uncommon to have a bunch of runners that are, that are quite decent hop in and out of reps to just like help out the pro guys as well. Um, and then lastly, we're actually generating quite a bit of interest right now, um, which is pretty cool to see. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be another, you know, one to three people join the group within the next year. And ideally one of them will be uh, a distance guy that, that, you know, can kind of be my go-to training partner and who knows, maybe I'll convince me to run a marathon. So uh, a lot of those, um, those uncertainties, I think will get answered over the next, you know, 12 months. I like seeing new training groups sort of sprout up. And I mean, Ronnie's just such a legend. It's, He's almost 80, right? He's 79. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because I like the very nice track club has always existed, which is which is quite funny. Um, but until recently, where um, Ron's son actually is the one who does all the video uh, production. And, you know, just with the surge of Hobbs and Willis's uh, sub four streak and Macy made the Olympics, like the, the media attention they've gotten over the last year has really, I guess, uh, legitimized, if that word's correct. The group. Um, so the very nice track club has been around for decades, but now I, I guess it's becoming like a very real opportunity for, you know, even people graduating to college at a very high level. And I, I think that makes us all excited. And, you know, before you're in a Reebok only group, now you're in a group, you know, you're sponsored by on Hobbs is sponsored by Adidas. Is that it? I guess maybe talk a little about the differences. Is that an easier model? Cause you guys can just recruit whoever you want or whoever, you don't even have to recruit them. If they want to come join you, they can come join you. Yeah, I would say, I would say it's definitely easier from an athlete's perspective. Um, we haven't any run into any issues from like a brand perspective that anyone's unhappy about it. Um, on, it's actually really funny. Like a lot of people thought I was joining OAC, which obviously would, you know, is a great opportunity. Um, it just wasn't exactly what I was looking for in terms of this stage of my life. But, um, I actually, like told on in advance that I was going to Ann Arbor to train with Ronnie before we even got into the negotiations of, of contracts. So um, it was made very clear, like I was going to the group and they were completely on board, which was great. Um, yeah. From a recruiting perspective, it, it definitely like puts a little bit of autonomy in like the athletes um, hands. Like we can now reach out to guys and say, Hey, like we don't really have any sort of like, I don't know, maybe like regulation or anything like that. Like there's really no limits on, who can join us, which is pretty cool. So we really just want people that can contribute in training um, and fit in culturally and ideally, you know, have great performances at a competitive level. But I would say that's probably third priority. I mean, mostly we just want guys that'll help everyone else out and are pleasant to be around, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, when I was with a, like a specific company-based group, um, a lot of that stuff just wasn't in my hands at all. You know, I often was the guy that um, Fox might say, Hey, like, can you talk to this kid who's interested in our group? And I would just give him some insight, but that was about it. We never had any like say, so 
Yeah, I would say like, it's just a really different style. Like instead of being like a pro group that's like, hey, come and join us and this is going to be your life now. It's more like, hey, if your lifestyle aligns with this type of training style, come and join us. Um, so it's more like, I don't know, I guess a group of pro runners rather than like a pro group, if that makes sense. But I'm sure like maybe boss is something that that's a little bit similar, but I don't know a whole lot about them. Right. And I mean, Chris Fox has had great success, won the NCAAs at, at Syracuse. Ronnie's had great success. What, what's the biggest difference between the two of them? Or, I guess, <laughs> or maybe what have you learned between, I mean, their personalities are very different, but. Yeah, that Venn, that Venn diagram would be, would be pretty interesting to look at. So um, yeah, they're both great guys. Um, obviously great, you know, legendary coaches. And, um, you know, I, I, I had great experience with both of them. Um, those are probably all the similarities and then everything else is different to be honest. Like they, you know, Fox is, uh, is a little bit more of like a man, of few words. Like, it's like really, it's like talking about kind of the stuff that makes a big impact, like checking in about how you're doing and move on and then talk to the next athlete where Ronnie is, you know, if you sit down with a conversation with Ronnie, you don't know, uh, you could be there all afternoon. Right. And, um, so that's one thing. And then secondly, just their training styles are quite different. Um, I, I would say they both have a, a pretty good um, emphasis on keeping things simple. Um, like Fox is really just about like not overcomplicating things, just getting good tempos, good far licks, touch the speed work and then go race. Ronnie, like his workouts are definitely way more complex. Like we'll go do Hills then track stuff and then tempo stuff. But like fundamentally, like everything can be changed. Like he does keep it simple that it's like, all right, let's just get good at Hills, get good at tempos, get good at speed work. And you're probably going to be pretty good. Um, so but yeah, the intensity side is so much different with Ronnie. Like I just am running splits that I, I never really ran under Fox. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's really up to the athlete in terms of what they, what they really thrive off of. Um, one thing that I think was challenging, like Fox, uh, Fox, Fox workouts are probably like the least sexy workouts of all time, like in terms of like your split. So you need to really experience his training style before you understand like what's good and what's not. Like I remember my first three months there being so discouraged because like my, my splits on everything were so slow, but like rest was cut in half. The context was so much more difficult rolling Hills, thousand feet of um, elevation. So, you know, if you're a guy that like can just trust that it's all going to come together on race day, it works really, really well. It's a guy like Colin, a guy like Justin, like seeing what Justin did in practice and then going and seeing what he did in races was, was phenomenal. Like he just had unconditional trust that he was ready for me. It was like, I, I kind of thrive off of that, like real evidence. Like I, I like running, you know, 157 in practice to know that I can close a race in 157. And that, that's one thing that I, I think like, I don't know if it's just my own insecurity, but that, that was a challenge for me. Like I always kind of went into races and almost like a little bit skeptical. Like, oh, I hope it's all there, but I wish I had a little bit more assurance that's something that i I do with ronnie a little bit more that that personally benefits me but again every athlete's a little bit different yep makes sense and i see rojo's on uh, you can't see him but i see him he's logged into this streaming software about to record the regular podcast he's obsessed he's obsessed with the shoes so he's like he texted me beforehand like ask him about the shoes you've had great success on the roads but he robert would say oh does would do you feel like you've been on a, on an equal playing field these last few years? I mean, you've won some big road races and now you're with another company on like 
what do you think about the whole shoe situation? Do you feel like it is a level playing field? I don't know, any more thoughts on technology, which we used to not really worry about in the sport? Oh, it's totally a, a concern now. Like, I think it's a very real um, consideration. Um, it's, it's a lot like, okay, so I, I've been a part of two relatively up and coming brands. It's weird to say about Reebok considering they've been around so long, but the time I signed with them, um, they were, they were just revamping their, their running, um, I guess department or, um, industry again. So yeah, I mean, uh, I, I knew going in that the, the product was going to get better the longer I was there. So three years ago, I mean, let me think about where we are. It's 2022 now. Like there was a period where, like when I won Thalmouth, I was in the Reebok float ride pros. And to me that, like, that's probably a situation where I'm like, wow, I'm actually pretty impressed myself that, <laughs> that I won in those. And those shoes are great. Um, anything over seven miles, it would have been a bit of a challenge. But like, that was a period where there was like clearly guys that had super shoes and guys that didn't. And the next year seeing Colin on the roads, like that's where we started to know, like realize that Colin like really like just couldn't keep up with guys that we thought he could and then you know sure enough we we got a taste of what those shoes were like and we're like wow these are a game changer so um my last um year or so with with Reebok they were um they provided us the ability to wear super shoes so the second time I won Falmouth in Manchester I was in you know the same tech so not at all at a different playing field um, and then what I also noticed is it made a pretty significant, um, improvement on my training. I was actually quite skeptical about that at first. Like some athletes basically said like, Hey, the performance is one thing, but it's really the cumulative effect from training. And I didn't really buy that. But once I started training in super shoes, um, I noticed, you know, like my mileage could go up faster splits, higher volume, and you could come all off feeling pretty good. So it certainly makes sense. So fast forward now I'm with on what I've been really impressed about with on is they've been very transparent about like where they're at with their products and they've been super um, keen to have the athletes involved in feedback and um, the the future production. So, you know, before I even signed with on, I met with Jordan who I spoke with earlier and he like sat me down and said, Hey, this is where we are right now, but I want you to know this is where we're going to be, you know, a few months into your contract with us. So you have all the information and, uh, and they delivered on it. So I went to Orlando, got to try out their, you know, improved shoes and their spikes. Um, so yeah, they're in the middle of, of making it, um, you know, just distributing them to all their athletes. So right now some athletes have them and some are, are, are just waiting to, to get them. But, um, yeah, I would say with on and in general, just all companies in the industry, I think the playing field is a lot more similar than it was three years ago when there was quite a steep drop off. That answers the question. All right. Yeah, it does. I think Jordan's a podcast listener. So, Hey Jordan, if you're listening, <laughs> Yeah, Jordan's awesome. Well, Ben, th thank you. John, anything else you want to add? Or no, I, th I think that covered it. It was it was a pleasure having you on the pod and getting to talk to you, Ben. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, I hope next time I'm on here, it's because something exceptional I did, rather than uh, you know being the guy that that possibly blew the record. But I I really appreciate the the intention and everything like that. So this was cool to be a part of it. Yeah, some huge victory or something. We got to have you back on after that. So the roads are coming up. The roads are coming up and uh, plan on I plan on capitalizing. Oh, I wonder why all these like American guys can't run 207 in the marathon. So maybe a Canadian can show them the way. Hey, I, uh, you know, that's long term. Uh, I, I definitely want to be uh, 
yeah, I, I've never run a marathon, so it, it wouldn't be fair for me to say what I, I expect I can do, but um, I've got big goals. So I'm, I'm excited for that transition when it happens. Okay. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Podcast listeners, we've told you about this. You need to do it. Take your recovery to the next level with the Therabody Recovery Air System. This is next level compression boots, the most advanced pneumatic compression system ever created. The exclusive fast flush technology flushes out metabolic waste at up to three times the speed of competitors. Faster cycles means faster recovery. And with the jet boots, those are the ones I have. Recovery is now wireless. The pump is built into the units. You don't have to be attached to the wall. You don't have to have a heavy external pump. They are amazing. Check them out now. Therabody.com slash let's run. Link in the show notes. You can start getting the recovery air system for as little as 59 bucks a month with the firm. And there's a 60-day money-back guarantee and free shipping. So no risk. If you're thinking about doing this, you got to try it out. Therabody.com slash let's run.